Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Emily Booter. John Fusco. And it's August 10th, 2017. On this week's show, a couple new and goddamn interesting industry studies, more of the same from the Academy, the Panasonic EVA1 specs, and an Ask No Film School, how to choose a tripod. Plus, as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, and indie film releases. Welcome to this week's show from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. We have a new president. Everyone, rejoice. This is the day we've all been waiting for. Okay, no, obviously I'm not talking about Trump, although I wish I was. Um, We have a new Academy president. (laughs) Opinions expressed on this show do not reflect the official opinions of No Film School. (laughs) Thank you for that disclaimer. The Academy last night, late last night, pulled a bait and switch when it elected 74-year-old cinematographer John Bailey as its new president. This is instead of the rumored frontrunner, none other than the legendary Laura Dern. So at first it appeared to be a controversial snub, but new information released this morning indicated that Dern actually declined her nomination and supported casting director David Rubin, who ran against Bailey. According to members of the board, Dern had second thoughts about running for the job at a time when her acting career is extremely active. Good for her. We want to see more of her face. Opinions do not reflect the official opinions of No Film School. No, just kidding. She's great. (laughs) Bailey will secede Cheryl Boone Isaacs, a former publicity executive and the first black woman to serve as the Academy president. Over her tenure of four consecutive terms, the Academy came under fire for hashtag Oscar so white. And Boone Isaacs, along with Academy CEO Don Hudson, led the charge on increasing diversity within the Academy's 17 branches. It goes without saying that Bailey's election doesn't quite further the diversity push, especially when you consider that the majority of the Academy's constituents are still, yes, older white men. But Bailey does bring with him something the Academy values, and that's experience. Though he's never been nominated for an Oscar himself, the poor guy, he shot Ordinary People, American Gigolo, The Big Chill, Groundhog Day, and many, many others. Bailey is also in his 14th year as a governor representing the cinematographer's branch. He'll be the first of his branch to serve as president, and he's expected to fight for the interests of below-the-line talent. Some things that Bailey will face as Academy president, the task of overseeing the construction of the industry group's $400 million museum, which opens in 2019, and, of course, implementing ambitious diversity goals. Just a little background on Bailey. Bailey graduated from USC Film School, where he studied criticism until deciding to pivot to cinematography. And speaking to an Emerson College audience in 2012, Bailey said, quote, Transitions are not something that all cinematographers always think about. We think about the scene, and we think about the shot, and we think about the movement within the shot. But you know, the really extraordinary cinematographers have to think editorially as well. I think that's a great piece of advice. Our next story is a little spicy. And yes, I do mean that Sean Spicer will be joining the crew of the No Film School podcast since being let go at the White House. No, I don't mean that. I don't. But it does have something to do with Republicans. In one of the most colorfully responded to posts that I've written at No Film School, I mentioned a new study conducted by the Harris Poll that found that the inclusion of certain swear words in your script can be a big turnoff to some viewers. 
hey, we've got our explicit rating on the podcast. I might as well use it. So the most offending words were, Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) JC. When used as a profanity. We're also 12. Did you guys know we were 12 years old? Um, So the use of Jesus Christ would deter 33% of the general American public from seeing the movie if they knew beforehand of its use. The next biggest offenders are goddamn at 32% and fuck at 31%. I like the way you said that last one. Fuck. (laughs) We need that like on repeat. Yeah. (laughs) Unsurprisingly, elderly and Christian viewers were among the populations most turned off by swears. But interestingly, 45% of Republicans are reportedly disturbed by the use of fuck as opposed to only 25% of Democrats. So if you're making a movie geared at elderly religious Republicans, you may want to give less of a fuck, as it were. While we're talking about industry studies, the National Endowment for the Arts here in the U.S. and the International Documentary Association just released a report on the state of the documentary industry, and I have to say, it's fairly depressing. Now, it's a 44-page document, so I won't go over all the findings here, but as a little bit of background, documentaries have traditionally differed from narratives in terms of how they're funded and how they make money, with a big chunk of profits coming from educational distribution and even to this day DVD sales, believe it or not. Now, both of those revenue streams are dying fast and traditional funding is drying up. So at the same time as there's more demand than ever for nonfiction content on streaming services and cable, there's less potential for filmmaker income. Fuck. The first section of the report talks about how financial sustainability is, unsurprisingly, at the top of mind for most doc professionals. More than two-thirds of those who took part in the study said that doc funding and making a living are, quote, the most challenging issues today. In terms of specific numbers, only about 22% of documentary professionals say that they're able to make their primary living from documentary. And 66% of documentary makers made either no salary at all or less than 50% of their salary from their most recent documentaries. Despite these challenges, documentary professionals view this as an exciting time in the field. Eight in 10 agree or strongly agree that they're excited about the future of documentary, and about two-thirds feel strongly that this is a, quote, golden era for documentary. So the main finding of the study is that documentary filmmakers are delusional. Womp. (laughs) I count myself among them. But seriously, the good news is that the report provides positive case studies and several recommendations for what we can do as an industry to shift gears and help resolve some of these issues. If you're interested, we'll link to the entire report in this week's podcast post, and they're also offering several free webinars to go over the findings. I feel like we need a new word for webinar. It sounds very, like, late 90s. I'm actually not in Locarno, um, unfortunately. <laughs> You're not? By the way, I'm in Brooklyn, <laughs> home of no film school. <laughs> uh, but, you know, what is in Locarno is the Locarno Film Festival. The festival's now in its 70th year. So, well, Locarno isn't one of the big three European festivals, which are, of course, Cannes, Venice, and Berlin, it does serve a very specific function in the film festival circuit. It's a place of discovery where unknown directors get their first break. In fact, the festival launched the careers of Adam Magoyan and Andrei Tarkovsky. 4,000 people attend the festival every year, where 300 films are shown over the course of 10 days, and many of them in the historic Locarno Piazza Grande, a gorgeous outdoor venue that I am not currently sitting in. The festival also hosts industry conferences, such as the Step In Think Tank, which this year gathered 60 prominent European independent film industry execs to battle it out over the issues they face as the global streaming economy takes over. Their discussion yielded some interesting points of debate, and I'm here to lay them out for you. 
Lay them out, Emily. Okay. Focus Features President Robert Wallach said that he saw Apple, quote, coming in as a buyer at the documentary level. So this kind of ties into your previous story. He wondered whether this trend would dominate the upcoming Toronto International Film Festival and suggested that Apple might just be the disruptor that Canada's big Apple needs. Wallach also predicted that Netflix would soon allow theatrical distribution for its titles, saying that the appointment of Scott Stuber, the head of original films at Netflix, signals that move. We can only hope. And there's much anti-Netflix sentiment among international indies for this very reason and some others. Susan Wendt, head of sales at Trust Nordic, said we are against Netflix being able to put their films in competition at A-list film festivals. As sales agents, we need those competition slots in order to sell our movies and put them in movie theaters. Why have a film in the competition that does not need that? It's a fair point. Mexican producer Jamie Romandia added that Netflix is usually not providing any viewership data, and this is disrupting the way we value films and filmmakers. Also a fair point. But do keep in mind that Netflix launched video streaming service in the U.S. in 2007, and it only launched in France and Germany in 2014 and in Spain and Italy a year later. So there's a bit of a delayed reaction here compared to the dialogue in the U.S. Okay, you guys are not going to see this one coming. The last takeaway from the conference would have Werner Herzog's panties in a bunch. I did not need that image, but keep going. (laughs) Bobby Allen, VP of content at Mubi, said he recently met a senior executive at Audi who's heading up a new department aimed directly at licensing content for none other than self-driving cars. According to Allen, his job is, quote, to figure out what content people are going to watch in their cars when all cars will be self-driving 10 years from now. What? (laughs) <laughs> While we're talking about movie, I also wanted to mention that Carlo Chatrion, Locarno's artistic director, told the streaming services blog that, quote, 90% of our selection is from scouting and not of the spontaneous submissions. So where does he scout and find these movies? It's at other festivals and co-production markets at Toronto, Cannes, or smaller co-production events like Les Arcs or Ventana Sur. So if you're gunning to premiere at Locarno next year, it might be a good idea to bring your film to a co-production market. And even though Switzerland is Switzerland, Locarno still gives out awards. This year, Pedro Almodovar's cinematographer Jose Luis Alcaine was honored, as well as Tony Erdman and L producer Michel Merkt, who received the 2017 Best Independent Producer Award. Elsewhere on the festival circuit, The Toronto International Film Festival and New York Film Festival lineups were announced last week and the week prior, and they're pretty exciting additions to the slate. TIFF is known for its comprehensive and often unnavigable lineup, but this year programmers said the festival is, quote, more tightly curated. It opens with Greta Gerwig's directorial debut, Lady Bird, and features other films from actors-turned-directors, such as First They Killed My Father from Angelina Jolie, Plonger, by Melanie Laurent, and Suburbicon from George Clooney. TIFF will also notably be the premiere of Darren Aronofsky's hotly anticipated horror thriller Mother, as well as Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water and Vim Vender's Submergence, and a personal favorite filmmaker of mine, Joaquin Trier's Thelma. Joe writes The Darkest Hour, which has Gary Oldman playing Winston Churchill, is the centerpiece gala screening at TIFF this year. And we had Joe Wright on the podcast last year because he directed an episode of Black, Black Mirror. Mirror at TIFF again. Some great films from Cannes this year bridge both the TIFF and NIF lineups. By the way, NIF is New York Film Festival, including the Palme d'Or winner Ruben Ostlund's The Square. 
and the Grand Prix winner 120 beats per minute, which made critics weep at its first press screening. My personal favorite American film from Cannes, Chloe Zhao's The Writer, is headed to both New York and Toronto, as is Call Me By Your Name, another lauded film from the festival. Sean Baker's The Florida Project, shot with a low budget and mostly non-actors, also going to both festivals. It's interesting to note that all three of NIF's gala screenings, films from Richard Linklater, Todd Haynes, and Woody Allen, were distributed by Amazon, and Netflix will be headed to New York with Noah Baumbach's ensemble comedy The Meyerowitz Stories and Dee Rees period drama Mudbound. So I realize that we should just start a segment of the show called Netflix News because we're including the company in our headlines week after week. But hey, it's perhaps the most relevant media company on the map these days. And so with that, in addition to what we've already heard about Netflix from Emily, here's this week's Netflix Netflix News. Pew, pew. Netflix has made its very first acquisition of another company, and it's not a studio or production house. It's a comic book publisher. Yes, Netflix bought Miller World. In case you haven't heard of Miller World, according to MarketWatch, its creative team has developed 18 published universes, three of which, Wanted, Kick-Ass, and Kingsman, have yielded four films that have grossed close to a billion dollars worldwide. But this isn't just a corporate corporate story. It actually has kind of an indie bent. Company founder Mark Miller came up at comic powerhouses DC and Marvel, but left to start his own creator-owned comic book company in 2004 with progressive policies such as giving half of all the income to the artist who illustrates the comics whenever film adaptation rights to a Miller World title are sold. It's really cool. And in true geek fashion, Miller issued a statement saying that getting acquired by Netflix, quote, felt like joining the Justice League. Now, you might remember that Disney bought Marvel back in 2009, a move which this Netflix acquisition kind of resembles. And in probably not at all a coincidence, Disney announced this week that it will pull all of its forthcoming movie titles from Netflix in 2019 and launch its own streaming service. No word yet on what that means for the Marvel series that were developed specifically for Netflix, like Daredevil, Jessica Jones, and Luke Cage. But what this may point to is Netflix's move further away from one-off indie productions and towards franchisable, merchandisable series. Hopefully for our listeners, the company will remain committed to both types of productions. And now here's Charles Hayne with some gear news. Hey, everybody. So the biggest gear news this week is that the final spec sheet and price have come out for the new Panasonic EVA-1, which some of the inter- on the Internet are nicknaming the Vericam Mini, although that is not what it's called. It's the EVA-1. But this is the camera they announced back at Cinegear in June, and it's a camera that a lot of people are really excited about. They're hoping it's going to be the return of Panasonic dominating this price point the way they did a decade ago and the way they really haven't for like the last five or six years. There's 4K internal recording. There's 5.7K RAW. There's 240 frames per second. It's a tiny form factor. It's all combined with Panasonic's famous color. Uh, This camera could really be dynamite. Uh, it's going to be $7,495 U.S. It's dual native ISO like the Vericam, but unlike the Vericam where the high ISO is up 5,000, the high ISO and the dual native will be 2,500. But that doesn't just mean like uh, any other camera where you can crank it up to 2,500. It's a native 2,500. It's a different setting all the way at the sensor. And then you can ramp it up on top of that, which will add more noise. The 5,000 ISO on the Vericam has like so little noise. So I think we can, uh, we're can. we all hoping that the uh, 2,500 ISO here will also be super clean and very usable. And uh, I think everybody in the film world can't wait to see some images out of this camera in the fall. 
Uh, up next, Leica is currently looking for buyers, and one of their oldest competitors, Zeiss, is looking like the likely candidate to buy them. Most of us think of Leica as a purely still photo brand, but they actually are like intimately tied to the film industry. They're the company that took 35mm film, which was originally a motion format, and then turned it into the sideways still format that became like the de facto film setting for the 20th century for still photo. Uh, beyond that, like many older Panavision lenses were actually rehoused Leica glass. Beyond that, many older Panavision lenses were actually rehoused Leicas. And of course, nowadays, CW Sonder Optic markets modern Leica cinema glass that's exceptionally possible. Uh, losing Leica wouldn't just be about losing history, but it'd also be about losing amazing lenses that we all use now and all the lenses that are likely designed in the future. So here's hoping they find the right buyer. And uh, hopefully that would be Zeiss, who has a really good handle on the uh, motion market. Last up, the final bit of gear news here is that Red Raven, the new Red affordable 4.5K EF mount camera, will be exclusively available at the Apple Store in your local mall. Uh, That's right, a digital cinema camera at the shopping mall. Honestly, I kid, but this sounds like great news for Red. They have really good brand awareness within the film world, but as they're about to launch their first consumer product, the Hydrogen, they need to break out of the film world and get some normal folks to know who they are, and I think Apple Store placement is a great start. Even if they don't sell a single Raven through the Apple Store that they couldn't have sold otherwise, even if it's only people buying it in the Apple Store who would have bought it from Red.com anyway, millions of people are going to walk past these in-store displays, see the unit, and know the brand. Which, ironically, is going to help them sell more of their Android consumer phones, the Hydrogen. On the flip side, this just seems like idiotic for Apple. Not only is this like promoting an Android-based brand, Hydrogen, making this like Apple having like a big display of Samsung dishwashers in the Apple store, it also, they're no longer the big dog in their own store. For a long time, the Halo device in an Apple store was like a massive Apple tower or the brand new giant iMac or an iPhone or an iPad. And that was the thing you went in to see and then you'd like also notice the accessories or whatever. But Apple doesn't have anything to generate foot traffic. Like, you can walk by an Apple store now and there's nothing. You're like, ah, I want to go see the Apple Watch. Like, that came out three years ago. You've seen it now. You might have even bought one, although not many did. So there's no legit reason to go to an Apple store now, and they're trying to make one by, like, carrying the cinema camera, and that's kind of sad. Yeah, very confusing. But now, Charles, here's your chance to clear up someone else's confusion on Ask No Film School. This week, we have Jake, who asks, Can someone recommend me a tripod and head, please? He has a few pieces of criteria. The first being price, which he says he can't spend more than about $1,200. US And the second being height. He wants to be able to go higher than six feet, ideally eight to nine feet. And also, he wants to be able to go low, so down to a few inches off the ground. Charles, what's the best option for him? So, first off, John, great transition. (laughs) Thank Uh, you. Jake, that's a great question. Man, finding a good tripod that's affordable is always a bit of a bear. 
In your, you you have a longer version of the question. In the longer version of your question, you say, should I just give up on having it all in one tripod and get a hi-hat? And I would say definitely. <laughs> Getting a tripod that goes to nine feet and a couple inches off the ground is uh, asking for the impossible. It's like, I want a sports car that I can also take my hockey team to the hockey match with. It's like, no, you get a bus and you get a Lamborghini. You don't get a bus a And And uh, so I, I think you focus on getting a tripod that can give you your eight feet. And then you get a hi-hat for like a hundred bucks because hi-hats are super durable. So you can totally buy one used. You do not need to get a brand new hi-hat. So, so accepting that you're going to spend like a hundred dollars on that hi-hat, we still have like a grand or $1,100 to spend. Personally, I own and love the Sackler Ace. For the price, I think it performs really well, and it's not going to be as smooth and silky as like an O'Connor 2575, but it's not going to cost as much as a car, and you can get really set up on one for like $1,100. Now, I haven't used it yet, but Sackler literally just came out with the Ace XL, which is the bigger, beefier Ace, came out last month, handles cameras up to 17 pounds, for about eleven fifteen new. Uh, however, I have the plain old Ace M, which is like seven hundred dollars new, and totally handles cameras up to five or six pounds with ease. So I would look in that arena. I feel like, um, as you pointed out in your question, a lot of Manfredo's options in that price point don't feel quite as durable, and you really feel like sometimes you got to go up to like three to four grand to get a great tripod. But at least my experience with the Ace, I've been very happy with it for your price. Great. Thanks, Charles. My pleasure. Here are some movies coming to VOD and theaters this week. DIY filmmaker Michal Marksak's mesmerizing and hypnotic All These Sleepless Nights is headed to Netflix on August 15th. When it was released in theaters earlier this year, I interviewed Marksak and wrote that the film is adolescence in experiential cinema form. The docufiction hybrid, which Marksak filmed in Warsaw using non-actors, follows the misadventures of a pair of teenage boys over the course of many sleepless nights, during which they party, meet girls, dance, wander aimlessly, and pontificate, usually while drunk or high or both. Marksack films them in unpredictable and intimate situations that sometimes feel too meticulously shot to be unscripted, but too visceral and spontaneous to be fiction. Marksack talked to me about building a custom DIY gimbal that he could operate from a backpack in order to get up close and personal with his non-actors. Quote, we looked through all the gimbals that were available on the market and none of them were good enough, Mark Zach said. Either they were too big or too clunky or not balanced enough or the motion was terrible. We started looking at custom stuff and then at the end of the day we were just like, fuck it, we'll build our own. So we designed our own gimbal from scratch. It was a combination of a Steadicam and a gyroscope. We custom modified the software on the gimbal control computer and built our own follow focus. We stripped everything into a backpack so everything was powered from there, and that's where the computer was controlling it. Pretty cool stuff. Hey, everybody. (laughs) Yeah, John has been (laughs) conspicuously silent this whole time. Well, no longer. That's because Ingrid Goes West is coming to theaters on August 11th, which is Friday. I just interviewed Matt Spicer, who's the director of the movie, uh, a couple days ago, and we'll be releasing that podcast on Monday, Uh, after you get a chance to see the movie this Friday. Ingrid Goes West is a crazy movie starring Aubrey Plaza and Elizabeth Olsen about a woman who becomes obsessed with an Instagram photographer slash lifestyle guru, moves across the country, and stalks her until she becomes friends with her. Plaza has a gift for playing characters that are, you know, 
a bit off, and she is both scary and funny as shit in this movie. <laughs> that kind of sounds like the story of our friendship, Sean. How so, Emily? Like how I stalked you on Instagram and then made you become friends with me? Because I'm a social media influencer? Yes, exactly. Oh, of course. Well, when I went into this movie expecting a comedy, it actually turned out to be quite a bit more dark and affecting than I'd imagined. Overall, though, it's a truly unique film in the vein of single white female with some poignant commentary on how great a role social media plays in our generation's everyday lives. For the record, I did not stalk John on Instagram. Yeah, for the record, I am not a social media influencer. <laughs> for the record, John is not a single white female. It's true. I am a single white male, though, so... Get at me. Give us a tweet, ladies, at Jim John Jim. Anyways... Next on the list. <laughs> I don't get what's so funny here. <laughs> Next. <laughs> on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, a documentary that was one of the most powerful films I've seen all year is also coming out on August 11th. It's called Who Streets. Who Streets picks up moments after the murder of unarmed black teen Michael Brown at the hands of Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. Through a harrowing collage of guerrilla-style filmmaking and archival footage, co-directors Sabah Folion and Damon Davis place us at the epicenter of the Ferguson community as racial tensions in the city reach their boiling point. The directors, however, don't focus on the forensic reports or harsh statistics associated with institutionalized racism. Instead, they sifted through nearly 400 hours of footage that they shot on their own with community members of Ferguson to deliver their message through the pain and heartbreak of the city's residents themselves. We have a really great podcast episode entitled How to Use Documentary as a Call to Action, The Mobilization Tactics of Who Streets, back from our time at Sundance, and I thought it was a little bit under-listened, so I encourage all of you to go back and listen to it now and also see the movie. It has been definitely one of my favorites that I've seen this year. And now, bouncing back again to the complete, complete other side of the spectrum, Annabelle Creation comes out on August 11th, and this is a studio horror sequel, but it has some indie roots, so we thought it was worth a mention. Our contributor Eric Baker wrote up a guest article for us the other week detailing director David F. Sandberg's journey from making horror shirts in his apartment to making blockbuster films for Hollywood. Check out the article to see how making a two-minute short film launched his career. Annabelle Creation takes place in the Conjuring universe. I've never seen any of those movies. I have, and they're scary. Yeah, ghost movies scare me, and I'm usually good at horror movies, but ghost movies are scary. So if you're, it was scary. I was a five finger rule. That was a five finger, ten finger rule. Oh no, the other hand was eating popcorn. Okay. Well, several years after the tragic death of their little girl, a doll maker and his wife welcome a nun and several girls from a shuttered orphanage into their home soon becoming the target of the dollmaker's possessed creation, Annabelle. Ooh, I'm already horrified. Like, Wait, I really oh, want to see this. God, no. John, do you want to see it at Draft House? No, I don't like I don't like ghost movies. Just said that. Emily could use the other five of her fingers to cover your eyes. These days, I'm all about those, uh, those movies about people who are sexually attracted to car accidents. Oh, he's talking about Cronenberg's crash. I watched it last night for the first time. That was a scary movie. And up next, our grant opportunity and festival deadlines, followed by Weekly Words of Wisdom. 
First up, the Alter Cine Foundation has a deadline of August 15th. This offers $10,000 in Canadian dollars to filmmakers born and living in Africa, Asia, or Latin America with a documentary project in your native language that fits in with the aims of the foundation. These aims include rights and freedoms like social and economic rights, women's rights, and the right to culture and artistic creation. Hot Doc's Blue Ice Group Documentary Development and Production Fund has a deadline on August 18th. Hot Docs, one of the world's best documentary film festivals, aims to support doc filmmakers that are citizens and residents of countries in continental Africa through funds and mentorship. The Hot Docs Blue Ice Group Documentary Fund offers grants in two separate categories, development and production. Approximately four to ten projects are awarded each year, and all successful applicants will be considered for up to five mentorship program slots, and select applicants will be invited to apply to the New York Times Opdocs under the HBDI, that is Hot Dogs Blue Ice Group Documentary Fund, banner. You like saying of, that name. Yeah, <laughs> I kept thinking of the Blue Man Group. Like, if you win the grant, do you also get to go see the Blue Man Group? <laughs> I think of, like, some cool, hip uh, alcoholic drink. Blue ice. Like, Blue uh, ice. Talk about the late 90s. Yeah. And now moving on to festival deadlines. The Philadelphia Film Festival has their extended deadline on August 11th. This takes place from October 19th to the 29th in Philadelphia. And it features screenings of international, domestic, local, and retrospective tributes, forums, panels, and receptions. The festival consists of approximately 100 films on up to seven screens over 11 days. And it was named one of 2016's top 50 film festivals worth the entry fee in 2016 by Movie Maker Magazine. The Indie Memphis Festival has a extended deadline as well on August 12th. This takes place November 1st through the 6th in Memphis, Tennessee. The 2016 festival attracted a record-setting attendance for the festival itself for nearly 200 feature films, shorts, and music videos. Indie Memphis has a strong focus on music, connecting filmmakers and festival attendees to the live music scene that pulses through the city. As such, they are one of the only festivals in the world to feature live music in the theater before every single screening. Their new music film categories and music video showcase will expand their emphasis on this collaboration between artists of all kinds. And on August 15th is the early deadline for the River Run International Film Festival. This is for uh, films with Game of Thrones themes. Right. Oh, it? or it's for films with Irish dancing themes because of river dance. That's what it, that's what I think of. Or it's for films that incorporate like straight bodies of water. Rivers aren't straight; they're curvy. Oh yeah. Curvy's where it's at. Yeah. So if you've got any of those <laughs> films, uh, you should check out this festival, which takes place April nineteenth to the 29th in Winston Salem, North Carolina. Each spring, River Run screens new narrative, docs, student, and animated films of all lengths from established and emerging filmmakers around the world, and it has five different juries that evaluate the competition films and award various prizes. There are also audience awards, which are awarded to the Best of the Fest, Best Narrative Feature, Best Doc, and what they call the Altered States films, which are new American independent films. I like that. Altered. They should call it the Altered States Fest. That's such a better name. I feel like that connotes drug use. Yeah, and then we wouldn't <laughs> know about all these rivers and stuff in the movies. That and how they're, they're curvy and definitely not straight lines. Yeah. Maybe. Anyway, <laughs> it's an Academy Award qualifying festival. Catelyn Stark will see you there. Which Stark? Catelyn, she's from River Run. I'm not there yet. Yeah, it's like the first thing. 
Oh, no? that's Catelyn's the mom? Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Yeah. Enjoy her while she lasts. Oh, oh, enjoy spoilers. Spoilers. And now on to our weekly words of wisdom. <laughs> Here's my weekly words of wisdom. My favorite video essayist is Nerdwriter. So this week I pulled a quote from a video I wrote up that he made regarding adaptation. In it, he talks about the failures that Ghost in the Shell's filmmakers made in unsuccessfully adapting the manga source material. Essentially, what he found is that the new film not only, quote-unquote, fails to recreate the beauty of its predecessor, it fails to understand the purpose of that beauty, which leads to his central thesis that any filmmaker should keep in mind if they're thinking of adapting another's work to the screen. Quote, Those who adapt works of art should be given the creative license to make the story work for them, but you can't just mine the source material for parts. Adaptations and remakes don't require strict adherence or obedience or even necessarily respect, just an understanding of what made the original so powerful in the first place. I want to throw back to this Monday's podcast with the entire cast of In the Radiant City, in which the genius Celia Weston said, quote, I could teach a course on how to survive a bad director. Been there, done that, have the t-shirt. And then we all discussed exactly what a bad director does. One thing a couple of the actors mentioned is that it's dangerous to direct for results. And I was asking Emily and John what what that even means. Oh, so it basically means like telling the actor exactly what you want from them in explicit terms. Like, you should cry now because you're sad, rather than giving them something to think about and creatively bring into their acting process. And that will produce that result. So on the flip side, they said that it's important that you're clear about your vision and give them constructive feedback. Madison Beattie, who's also in the movie, mentioned that she starts to worry when a director always says, yeah, that was great, and moves on. So I guess the key is finding the balance between clear, instructive feedback while still giving your actors room to interpret their lines. My turn! This week, I covered a video series from the camera sellers Akuto called The Dirty Secret, How to Make Money as a Filmmaker, which racked up some kind of controversial comments on social media due to its very practical, if disillusioning, advice. One of the major takeaways was that you should be a predator, as in producer, editor, director, if you want to be marketable right off the bat, especially coming out of film school. Another was that you shouldn't be afraid of shooting corporate videos as they enable you to make the stuff you want to make on the side and give you an excellent training ground in production. One of the panelists, Steve Weiss, said, when cable dies, companies will have their own shows, Ford, Target, etc., The future of the indie film community is in companies making shows. I mean, look at Amazon. So what were people saying uh, negatively about that? They were arguing that these guys are promoting a career in corporate videos and not in film art, Um, which is a valid concern. But at the end of the day, filmmakers have to make money. And if you're able to balance a lifestyle of commercial or corporate directing and art film, then you're living the dream. Yeah, so many directors, I feel like, in the podcast interviews that I've done have been like, make your shitty movies before you make your own, like, movie. And, you know, you could just do that for a corporation instead. And then On someone else's ready, time. Yeah, and then be ready to make your own thing. It's funny how this episode unintentionally went full circle because that, you know, the documentary study I talked about was all about how much of a struggle it is to really make a living, at least as a documentary filmmaker. And... You know, I understand and appreciate that some of our readers have art at the front of their minds, and I think a lot of us do, but there's a practical side to things. I mean, you have to live. So I, for one, was glad that you put that article out there, even if it's some of it was dirty. 
So speaking of dirty, dirty stuff, I rarely do self-promotion on here, but this week I'm breaking form to ask for your help. As you might know, uh, voting on the South by Southwest panel picker is now officially open already until August 25th, and I've got a panel on there that I'd love to ask for your upvote on. It's going to be super, super cool. I would attend for sure if I weren't moderating. The panel is called Episodic TV, How Filmmakers Can Ride the Wave. And the panelists are TV director Steph Green, who's recently directed The Americans, Billions, and Bait Motel, and Phil Trail, who has over 40 directing credits under his name, including Fresh Off the Boat, Modern Family, and The Middle. Also joining us is Jennifer Goyne-Blake from the Sundance Institute's Episodic Lab. So please go vote at panelpicker.sxsw.com, panelpicker.southbysouthwest.com. Search for Episodic TV or my name, Liz Nord, and you should find it. Thank you so much. And one more little note, I was a guest on another podcast called Barely Working, hosted by Adam and Nick, a filmmaker and actor, respectively, and the episode just came out on Tuesday. It was so fun and funny, and we talked about all kinds of stuff from my career to, of course, no film school, to freelancing in New York, and even the Twilight movies, so I think you will find it entertaining, and you can check it out by searching for Barely Working on your podcast app. Speaking of excellent podcasts... Yeah, as uh, I mentioned earlier, next week's interview podcast will be with Ingrid Ghost West writer-director Matt Spicer, um, which is a conversation that I had just yesterday, in fact. And the conversation took a turn for the meta as we ended up talking about the pros and cons of social media use in the film industry. Questions like, should you be casting people that have millions of Instagram followers or actors that give the part more depth? It's definitely an interesting debate from a production standpoint, and he had some really great thoughts on the matter um, because he's particularly interested in finding sort of unique voices. So this whole strategy sort of conflicts with his basic ideology, but he sees the value in it. So weird time to be living. Listen up, people. I can't wait. Meanwhile, you could read about everything we talked about on the show in this week's podcast post, and lots more about the craft of filmmaking at nofilmschool.com. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes with those five, five, five stars. Or find us, the No Film School podcast, on any of your podcasting apps. And meanwhile, stay in touch because we love you. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At E.L. Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. And we're all at No Film School. See you next week. Toodaloo!